This morning we're looking at part three of our series on the kingdom of heaven. In the last few weeks we've been laying down and establishing foundations often in a culture, a society, even inside the church there is much confusion Even in the midst of great curiosity, there's often great confusion towards the reality of heaven. And so what we have been attempting to do each week is laying down biblical foundations for us to understand this place where in Christ we will spend all of eternity. I think it's worth our attention and our time. Last week we talked about the biblical foundation and the reality of there being two heavens We talked about the present heaven, the heaven now. It is the place where our souls go. For those that are in Christ, upon death, immediately, instantaneously, without any pause, our souls, our non-physical part of our being, goes immediately into heaven. And it's conscious, in a state that is alive, Our soul is the non-physical part of our human being that has emotions and dreams and desires, has the capacity to decide that which is right and wrong, so that our souls are immediately caught into this present heaven. But then the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talk about a future heaven, the ultimate kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom, where not only our souls will be in the presence of God forever, but the place where our souls will be reunited with our physical bodies. That for those that die in Christ, that our physical bodies are only dead for a period of time. It led the New Testament writers to call that type of death sleep because they refused to believe that those that died in Christ would physically remain in the ground forever. And so if you are in Christ, the final destination for the Christian is a new heaven and a new earth, a eternal kingdom where you will be raised from the dead. Whether you have been buried physically, whether you've been cremated, your body will be raised from the dead in a a body that is your body, but a redeemed body, a transformed body living and existing forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But this is what I want to do this morning. I want to get even more practical. And I want to answer this question. Does the reality and the promise of heaven, this place where we will dwell in the presence of God forever, satisfy our earthly present longings that you and I have today? Does the ultimate promise of heaven, spending eternity with God, actually satisfy our earthly longings today? To do so, we're going to look at Revelation. To answer that question, we're going to look at Revelation 21, verse 1 through 8. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 8. It gives us a picture of the end of history Revelation 21 and 22, both are chapters that describe that final heaven, that final piece of history, 
the kingdom of heaven that will last forever and ever, the place where not only our souls will exist in the presence of God, but the place where our bodies will exist in the presence of God forever and ever as well. So Revelation 21, written by John the Apostle, written from a vision that he receives from God of the final heaven and the final earth, written to give hope to the first century church under immense persecution and suffering, written to a group that were longing for good news in the midst of much doubt, in the midst of much pain, in the midst of great evil. Revelation chapter 21 does heaven satisfy the longings of our soul and give us a living hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And may we heed these words, words from God himself to the apostle and to us as church today to give you and to give me a living hope. John Lennon, many years ago, wrote these famous words. Imagine, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine just living for today. What was John Lennon trying to do? And what was he trying to say? He was saying that you and I have real problems. You and I have real longings and desires. And this pie in the sky thought of heaven does us no earthly good. But instead, we, what we need to do to solve the real problems of the world, to really make a difference, to really answer and satisfy the longings of our heart, is forget about heaven and just think about today. I want to ask you a question. How are we doing on that? How's our society and our culture and our world and our family and our kids and your own soul 
doing, by thinking and imagining there is no heaven. What I want to propose to you this morning, in context of Revelation 21, is that you would not only imagine there's a heaven, but that heaven would be your living hope and that you would have such a great confidence in the reality of heaven that it would become your living hope in this world and in the world to come and that it would fulfill the deepest and most profound longings of your heart. You often hear people say that that individual is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But I want to propose this, that it is the most heavenly minded people that are only the most earthly good. How does the reality and the promise of heaven answer and fulfill the deepest longings and desires of our heart? How does it become an indestructible living hope both now and forever. The first question that I want us to look at here in Revelation 21 is what exactly is the nature? What is our living hope that John describes here in the vision? What is the nature of our living hope? Well, verse 1 and 2 answer that question for us. John sees this vision and it is the vision of the end of history. And what does he see? disembodied spirits floating up into the clouds and God destroying the earth below? No. John looks up and he sees the vision of the end and it is actually heaven coming down, not us going up to heaven, but heaven coming down. And no longer does it say, will there be a separation between heaven and earth? You see, the nature and the reality of this living hope is that heaven one day in the end will come down and it will come down to earth and God will create what? The new heaven and the new earth. This is our final home. This is our final destination. A redeemed and renewed and restored world unlike anything we've ever seen before. It is heaven coming down. It is the answer to that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, when we just prayed together on earth as it is in heaven, that the realities of heaven would be made manifest and true here on earth. This is the final destination for all those that are found in Christ. Notice that that Revelation 21 does not say that God is in the business of making all new things and destroying this earth. But what God is in the business of doing is making all things new. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ promises that everything that we have will one day in Christ, all of those that are in Christ will be redeemed and restored and renewed in the new heavens and the new earth. That heaven will come down and restore earth into the earth into the paradise as it was meant to be experienced in the garden. But John doesn't stop there. He not only describes the end of history as a new heavens and a new earth, he not only describes the end of history of heaven and earth becoming one, but what does he say in the first part of verse 2? So important in understanding what our living hope is. He says it's a city, a holy city, a city called heaven. This is so profound. Do not gloss over this truth. 
John does not say, as he does in other portions of Revelation, that I see this vision and it'll be like this, or it'll be like that, that I don't know exactly how to describe it. John knows exactly what he's describing here. He says it's a city. And the reason this is so important and profound is we often go through life as Christians wondering what will heaven be like? What will it look like? And John says, what will it look like? What will it be like? It'll be a city. Now, what's a city? When the ancient readers, when the first century church heard this news that the final destination for them would be a city, what would have come to mind? Joshua Mark, a a historian and a scholar of ancient history, says this about the ancient definition of a city. Tell me if it sounds familiar. He said, in the study of the ancient world, a city is defined as a large populated urban center of commerce and administration with a system of laws and a means of sanitation. It's a place of great settlement, buildings, administrative governments, walls, and or fortifications. And he goes on to explain other aspects of the city. When the early readers and the early recipients got this news that heaven is a city, they would have understood exactly what John was describing And that gives us good news this morning because we do not have to go through life wondering what is the nature of this living hope or what will heaven be like. John says in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be a city, a real city with people and buildings and means of transportation where we will eat and drink and live and hug and work and dance and sing. What a glorious day it will be. So that John helps us understand that we don't have to go through life thinking heaven is disconnected from reality. That we don't have to go through life thinking, as I've said the last two weeks, that heaven is some abstract, nebulous place where we'll just be floating on the clouds for all of eternity. He says it's a city, but a redeemed city and a renewed city. I would have loved to be there, have been there, when the first recipients of Revelation in the first century received this word, what was their idea of, of the city? What was the ultimate city in the first century? Rome. Rome was called the eternal city, but it was the place where Christians were not allowed. And can you imagine the first century church receiving this word from Revelation, I want to think, I want to imagine that they receive this with tears streaming down their face and saying, wait a second, you mean the eternal city is not Rome? You mean there is a city that is for me? You mean there is a city that I can make it and call it my home? Can you imagine the reaction of the early recipients of this good word, that Rome is not the place, that Rome is not the epicenter, that Rome is not the eternal city, but heaven, that is where the final city, that is where the eternal city will be, where I will always be welcomed and I will always be embraced as a son and as a daughter. This is the nature of our living hope, a real place, a real place, a real city that we can call 
our home. This is the nature of our living hope. But secondly, we not only need to understand what is the living hope that you and I have this side of heaven, but why do we need a living hope? Why is this important for us to have a living hope? Why is it important that we just don't see heaven as that place we go when we die? Why does heaven need to be made a reality in our lives as a living hope today? Because we're desperate people. We are people longing to be satisfied. And often we think this about all of our desires and all of our longings. We believe that it's disconnected from what God will provide. We somehow have bought into the lie that our longings and our dreams and our desires are disconnected from what God provides. But here's the reality. In heaven and the reality of heaven, God satisfies all of our longings and all of our desires. What are those longings and desires? We long for perfection. We long for identity and have a name. We long for purpose. We long to belong. We long for forgiveness. We long for the freedom from shame and guilt. We long for beauty and from the relief from pain and suffering. And the good news of what John provides here in Revelation 21 is that all of the longings of humanity are answered in the promise and satisfied in the promise and the reality of heaven. You don't believe me? Let's look at it together. Perfection. Our longing to find that which is perfect. Perfect truth and perfect knowledge and perfect beauty found here. Where is perfection found? It says in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The promise of heaven is this, that the perfect one becomes for them the very sustainer of life and being that they will be able to dwell in the presence of perfection forever. So all of our longings to see that which is perfect, to find that which is perfect, we will be in the presence of perfection forever. But to step further, how do we find satisfy our longings for identity and purpose? What will happen and what does happen when we come face to face with our Creator? We will finally, once and for all, be face to face with the one in whose, whose image we have been created. We will be in the presence of the great creator of the heavens and the earth, but in the presence of the one in whose image we bear. And we will finally be able to understand why we were created, understand who we are and who we belong to. No longer will we have to wonder, who am I and what is my identity and what is my purpose and what I've been created for? Will we find our satisfaction of being forgiven, our longing to be forgiven, our longing to be freed from sin and guilt and shame. What's interesting in verse 2, it says this, that I saw a holy city coming down out of heaven. How? How did he, does he describe the city? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now a bride adorned for her husband in the ancient language means the epitome of perfect beauty. A bride would be made beautiful by her husband. 
would be clothed in splendor, to be made acceptable, to be made right, absent of sin, absent of guilt, absent of shame. And so the only thing we can conclude about this holy city is that it would be impossible for people that are in sin and shame and guilt and brokenness to be allowed into a city without blemish, to be a part of a city that is adorned as a bride prepared for her husband. You see, the promise of verse 2 is that God will even satisfy the longings of our heart to be made beautiful, absent of shame, absent of guilt. Do you understand the good news and the ramifications of this? That regardless of who you are or where you've been this morning, that your promise, if you are found in Christ, is that you are going to a place that satisfies the longing to be, live a life absent of regret, absent of shame, absent of guilt, that you will dwell in a place that is pure and that is holy. And the only reason you'll be able to dwell there is because God in Jesus Christ has made you beautiful forever and ever. How about our longing to be relieved from physical pain and suffering? Look at verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain because the former things, the former things have passed away. We live in a world and live in our lives longing to be freed from pain and from suffering. Longing to be freed from the pain and suffering of, of death and trauma, and mental illness, and depression, freed from the tragic loss of loved ones and friends. And God satisfies that longing that you and I have, satisfies the longing of this Father, that one day we will live in a land, that we will live in a new heaven and a new earth where those longings will be satisfied forever and ever. Are you understanding the realities of what this is talking about? Heaven satisfies from top to bottom every longing and desire of your heart. This is the good news of heaven for all those that believe. You see, this is the reason we love fantasy. We love movies about fantasy and books about fantasy and books about fantasy. We, from the time we are a child, we dream of other worlds and other lands. We dream of having supernatural powers that go beyond the the basics of nature and go beyond the basics of science. Why? Because we're all longing for something more. We're longing for something greater. We're longing for something better. Movie industries have made billions of dollars based upon our longing and our dream for something more and something greater. But listen to me. It is when we read about heaven that fantasy becomes reality. That we no longer have to long in our hearts and our minds. We can say, I have it. My longings and my dreams and my desires for something more and something greater are infinitely satisfied in the promise of heaven. It truly is our living hope. And then lastly, what is the nature of our hope? Why do we need this living hope? 
And lastly, how do we receive it? Probably the most important question you or I will ever ask, how do we receive this living hope? What does it say in verse six? Come, you who are thirsty, and receive water for free. It says, come and receive water, and you don't have to make any payment. You see, what John is describing here is the invitation of Jesus that there is a thirst of your soul that you and I have. And the thirst is not what, what is bad. It is how we have attempted to quench the longings of our soul, to quench our thirsty souls with everything other than God. You see, we have been created. We are hope-shaped creatures. We are creatures created with a thirst. But here is the truth. That thirst and that longing can only be satisfied by the one who offers us infinite water, eternal water. Your thirst and my thirst, that longing deep in our soul for something more, for something better, for something greater, can only be satisfied by the one who invites us this morning to come. The only one that gets into the city of heaven is the one who admits, I am thirsty. And so if you admit this morning that you have a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy, there's good news for you this morning. You are the one whom God is seeking. But who doesn't get in? Verse 8. the most unpopular doctrine in the Bible. What does verse 8 describe? Verse 8 describes all those who don't get in. This is the doctrine of hell. And just as we've been talking about for the last few weeks that heaven is a real place, listen to me, hell is a real place. And it is in verse 8 that John describes in general terms all those people that at one point in their life said, imagine there's no heaven. Let's live for today. Imagine that I can quench my thirst on my own and refuse the free offer of God to be, receive his water in which I will never be thirsty again. Verse 8 describes in real, clear, concrete terms those who refuse the offer of receiving the living water of God who said, I am thirsty, but it's not the water that Jesus provides that will quench my thirst. I will find water from this land to quench my thirst. And God says to them, fine. You want to live for today? You will get exactly what today provides. Eternal separation from God. Fine. You want what today offers? Infinite thirst forever and ever and ever. Alienated from God with unfulfilled dreams and hope and desires and suffering the consequences of their sin and turning their back on God forever. That is the reality of those who refuse 
to receive the living water from God himself. This passage tells us that this water is received with no payment. And the reason that this water is received with no payment is there's one who did make payment for it. Jesus himself on the cross cries out to God and he says, I thirst. You see, it is on the cross that Jesus took our sin and he became a curse for you and for me. It is on the cross that Jesus experienced cosmic thirst so that you and I, if we place our faith and trust in him, will never be thirsty again. The reason we get the face of God is because Jesus lost the face of God on the cross. And the only thing you need today, before we come to the table, is to admit that thirst. Admit that there is nothing this side of heaven that will ever, ever quench the thirst and the longing of my soul. A few years ago, we remembered the infamous story, the reality of the sinking of the Titanic. The boat, they said, that would never sink. Did you know on the Titanic there was 1,200 spaces on lifeboats? Never knew that before. There was 1,200 spaces on lifeboats. Only 700 of them got filled. Do you know why only 700 got filled? Because there was people that remained on the ship that said, this ship won't sink. Tragedy. But I'll tell you a greater tragedy. Those that hear the invitation of Jesus Christ to come and receive the living water, and they say, no thanks. This ship, it won't sink. That is a tragedy of epic, of infinite proportions. I don't have to do an invitation this morning. Jesus does it for us. He says, come now. Come today and take water at no payment, at no cost to you. The water that cost my son everything is offered to you today. The tragedy of tragedies would for you to sit here this morning with the free offer of water that will quench your soul forever and go, thanks, but no thanks. I ask you this morning, are you thirsty? Is your soul longing to be quenched? It is only the promise and the reality of heaven that will forever satisfy your souls. Nothing will ever satisfy. Come, would you bow your head and close your eyes right now? If you're here this morning, and you feel God by his Holy Spirit at work in you, right now, do not harden your heart. I don't care who you are, I don't care if you're a teenager or a child or you're 88 years old, I know that there are people in this church that are not in, that need to be in. I know there are people in this church that are thirsty, that need to have their thirst quenched. And if you're here this morning and that is you, come. 
Do not delay. If God is stirring in your heart this morning, stop running and heed the words of Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, he says, come, come to me right now. Come to Jesus. Maybe even these words would help you. You can pray this right where you're seated. Lord Jesus, I can't believe you would have me, but I know that I need you. I want to belong. I want to belong to you. I want your favor. I want your love. I want to live in your presence. I want to be in your city with no shame and no more crying and no more tears. I want to dwell with you in the house of the Lord, in the city called heaven forever. Amen.